Hello, you lovely lot. I wanted to take a moment to share an exciting announcement with you all. I will be doing a live show for Happy Mum, Happy Baby at the podcast show in London on the 22nd of May. This will be a live episode of this very podcast featuring me and a very special soon-to-be-announced guest. Get ready for a candid conversation, unfiltered truths, laughs, invaluable non-judgmental advice and lived experiences. Dive into the complexities of parenting while juggling work, relationships and personal growth and we'll be talking beyond the baby years. As well as the live episode, the show will also include a Q&A with both me and my guest. Tickets go on sale this Friday the 26th of April at 10am, but anyone who is part of the Happy Mum, Happy Baby newsletter will be getting early access to tickets on Wednesday the 24th of April at 10am. To sign up to the newsletter and for more information about the event, please head to happymumhappybaby.com forward slash events. I can't wait to see you there. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Happy Mum, Happy Baby, the podcast. Today's guest is a presenter we've seen on our TVs so much. Uh, she's also the host of a podcast called Midpoint, uh, which is middle-aged and unashamed. I love I love just that tagline, it's brilliant. Uh, she's also the mum of two, two kids who are 17, Reuben and Lois. It's Gavi Logan. Hello. Hello, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. Very good. You've got a very good tagline. <laughs> Middle-aged and unashamed, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's about more than being kind of beige and wearing elasticated waistbands. That's what I kind of wanted to... At the beginning, actually, going right back to the start of the podcast, it was more about the challenges of life when you get to the point where perhaps you're looking towards empty nest, kind of, you know, the future, and yeah. what you're going to do with your life in terms of things that you might want to go into that you've never had, a you know, time to do before or taking a leap into a new career. And, it, and it's evolved into all sorts of areas. There's so much health-related stuff about midlife you know the menopause stuff that's been big conversation and taboos being broken down so it's been a lovely space to be actually and um is it really refreshing having those conversations that maybe aren't out there yeah and feeling that they're now more um likely to occur in places that you know previously they didn't and people are very much more mindful about the workplace how that affects midlife women and um and the kind of provision for for you know midlife health I think is really important as well so um yeah I'm you know as you mentioned Reuben and Lois are 17 so in a few months time they'll have finished their A-levels and so I'm I am my target audience it was a completely self-serving uh, <laughs> podcast I just sometimes <laughs> you've just got to make what we need yeah, exactly <laughs> how are you feeling about that that new phase of life really mixed Reuben won't be here after the summer he's definitely going off Lois will have a year off she wants to do some stuff she rides and she wants to do stuff with horses before she goes to uni so they're very kindly phasing themselves out of me I think if they've both gone <laughs> out off, of your life yeah <laughs> and then there was a possibility they'd start university on the same day and both leave me at the same time and that would have been just dreadful we do have moments Kenny and I where the house is eerily empty they're both somewhere else you know that night or away at the weekend and this is the future and it feels so quiet and um, there's so much space not just in the house but in our minds and you know you kind of realize the good things are the possibilities of doing things and saying yes to things that you previously wouldn't because of the kids um, yeah. and obviously there's lots of downsides and I really enjoy their company and I love hearing them chatter and talk and, and but they're not going away forever you know it's just it's just that kind of feeling of waking up in the morning and not having the structure to your day as well yeah 
which you've not got any kids to get up and out of the house and just to encourage out the door. Yeah, but you, you know, when you first have children, I, I said something the other day, when they go to school, that was the big moment where it really hit me like a kind of, you know, oh my God, somebody else is telling me when we can go on holiday, when we can, uh, <laughs> you know, when we can have lunch together, when we can... All, so school life becomes the structure, doesn't it? Term times yeah. become the structure. We've had that for the last... 14 years that structure mm. of, of, of you know somebody else is kind of telling you what your timetable is and it's that idea that we could go on holiday in September you know <laughs> 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 if we really wanted to um and so that'll be weird I said to Kenny do you think we'll start getting up we'd get up about six now we have to get them on a bus at seven I said do you think yeah. we'll start getting up later and he's like no it's really good to get up early but I said yeah but we don't have to you know <laughs> there's that whole mentality isn't there if you get up and make your bed straight away then as soon as you woke within the first minute of waking up you've achieved yeah you've done something yeah and I think if there is you know if we have a Saturday where we don't have to get up the kids might get up and wander down and make themselves breakfast but it is that kind of lazy morning yeah. of, and if you've got that all the time yeah, I mean, we'll still have jobs. Well, of course, let's not forget. The, we the still have to go to work. But, but, we, but as we don't, both, neither of us are on that kind of nine to five schedule. You know, we, Kenny yeah. runs his own business and does lots of other things. And obviously my job can be at weekends. It can be, yeah. you know, away. So we're not on that kind of in the train at eight o'clock in the morning type kind of routine. So as yeah. my son said to me the other day, you escaped the, the rat race. <laughs> <laughs> um, which I've never thought of it like that. But I, we have a different kind of rat race, I guess. You know, we have different uh, kind of leanings on our time. So yeah. we'll still have work. But um, I just I, I just really love their company, you know. And I was driving home from school. Normally they get the bus, but my daughter's got a driving test coming up. So I, I went to school to pick her up so she could drive home in her car. And my son was in the back seat and he's not as close to his driving test, let's just say that, as she is. <laughs> okay. And um, he was just being so funny and made me laugh so much all the way home for about 35 minutes that I, I kind of like, oh, I want to just kind of, you know, he won't just want to ring me up, though, and have a chat. You know? well, what are they like? If you're not together, say you're away for work or whatever, what are they like at keeping in touch? Um, Lois is a... Con she's really very organised and a constant texter and in, in, in WhatsApper. So, you know, she'll be telling me stuff all the time and this is happening and, oh, could you just order this for me? And I've got this going on and what will you be doing on this day? She's really organised like that and so she keeps in touch well with her kind of texting and her WhatsApping and she will call me. Um, Ruben, if he's in the room, he'll happily jump on a FaceTime, but he would also happily go two weeks without having no. heard a word from me, you know. <laughs> oh, my gosh, this doesn't fare very well if you're going to be sending him off to uni. You're yeah. not going to hear from him until Christmas. The only thing that I'm kind of hoping is that he'll need some cash at some point, you know, and he'll run out of cash. So, um, And he's also promised to bring his washing back, which is brilliant news. Um, so, yeah, he's... He's not bad. He'll send me little messages every now and again, or we'll have a dialogue, you know, kind of a conversation on text or an email. It's funny, they come to me for one kind of set of problems and they go to Kenny with other challenges. You know, they'll come to me Ooh, with all, that's their, interesting. Yeah, all their academic stuff, anything that's going on relating to school, I get emails about uh, from them. And Kenny's very much, um, he controls their, you know, when they had Go Henry's, you know, those cards that you can put top up and stuff before they got their other accounts. He was the one that controlled those. So if they wanted more money or and he's always had their phones on his phone as well. So if they wanted an app or if they wanted some more screen time, you know, so he'd yeah. be the one they go to for that. So. Um, so, yes, we have different roles. And also they know who's picking them up from rugby training or from the horse yard or all those different things. So they um, they do contact you about different things. You don't often get a random.
and um, I love you. I hope you're having a great day. <laughs> but occasionally you do. And, you know, that they're lovely ones to get. Um, but that's and- the thing, isn't it? That's going to be the shift when they're not with you. It's, it's going to be calling you not to kind of go, mum, I need this or, you know, any stuff practical. that's that, practical. Yeah, it's going to be a kind of, hi, how are you doing? Yeah, kind what, of thing. Hopefully that's day? the call that you want. Yeah. You don't want a I need help situation, you no. know. So there's going to be that shift in even that dialogue. Yeah, and and actually already they do, like last night in the car, Ruben was saying, well, how was your day today, mum? What did you do? And, you know, they do ask about my day and what I've been up to. So I hope that carries on and they, you know, they keep of interested in the family dynamic and Kenny's said to them that whatever happens for the rest of their lives there has to be at least one week a year and it doesn't matter how many you know kids or husbands or wives they've got we all have to go on holiday for at least one week a year that's the rule so um uh, and I'm sure it'll be more than that because um you know until they can afford their own holidays I'm sure they'll be happy to jump (laughs) on ours but um but they're, they're very they're very kind of wedded to the area we live in we've been in this area for about 10 years and they love all their local friends and yeah. they, the idea of me kind of, you know, us selling up and going on somewhere else. Ruben's like, but yeah, but I want to come back to my mates. And so they like the kind of anchoring of home and they love yeah. they love where we live. You know, so that's a, that's a positive. They, they love this yeah. area. So hopefully that will Do you will think that will back. also cement you in where you live? Because a lot of parents, mm. when their kids move out, they look around. Like you were saying about, you know, it feels really big and spa- like there's yeah. just a lot of air in yeah. the space yeah. now. Like, but, uh, do you feel like that? Is just you want that home to stay there in case they ever need to come back and also to have that base. I have a romantic notion of, you know, having grandchildren running around the same spaces that they had, you know, when they were little. But that that's that could be, you know, if he's I mean, I'm hoping yeah. it's not going to be 20 years, but it, it could be 20 years. you know. Um, so I, I've got to be practical about things, haven't I? And we'll see how, how we get on. We could I could start kind of just bringing in waifs and strays and letting anybody come. And... Why not? But it is a funny thing, actually, because I can remember my mum and dad moving out of our family home. I mean, they separated. So that's why yeah. uh, they decided to move out. But it is that thing of simple things of going to your parents home and not like being able to just go into your family home and get the biscuits out when yeah. you're having a cup of tea like silly things yeah. like that it still feels like yours whereas now when I go to their places I feel like it's theirs and I'm yeah. a guest yeah that's interesting because my mum is about to knock down our family home and build <gasps> apartments so she wants to stay living on the, the plot and yeah. she's going to take you know the, the kind of top apartment and um, my parents also are separated but that house is where I moved to when I was 10. So I'm exactly how yeah. you were, you know, when I kind of go, when I go home, even though I'm 49 and I'm not hungry, I open the fridge. That's literally <laughs> the first thing I do. Because that's what I in? did every day after school. <laughs> and I see my kids do exactly the same thing. And, and even their friends, like they've got a few friends who spend so much time here, they open the fridge on their own when oh. they come to the house. So I love, I love that idea that, you know, that they can just feel that kind of that affinity where all my mum has totally cleared out I mean she's so funny when I was buying my first house in London this van arrived and it was just boxes and boxes of schoolwork and um, <laughs> all sorts of medals and things that she clearly felt guilty about not throwing in a tip but she you know but she didn't want to keep any more at home now it's your problem yeah exactly so um so I I, I do feel when I go home the, the ground floor of my house my parents house that we grew up in feels like home upstairs all our bedrooms have been, you know, redecorated and are not no longer the kind of childhood memories that sits, you know, sit yeah. on the walls and stuff. But it does feel like somewhere that you immediately know is home, you know, which is um, yeah. Which I wonder what's gonna, how that's gonna feel when it's somewhere new, because obviously externally yeah. 
it's still the same views that yeah. you would have looked at. Yeah, but other people yeah. are living there as well, you know, on that. I'm pleased in a way, though, that she is doing that. It's going to be hard work. I mean, she's 72, but she is a, she is in property. It's going to be a hard project for her, but she's got loads of energy. But I'm pleased she's staying in that spot because sadly that's where my brother died, in the garden mm. there. And I think there's a bit of her that there was a, a tree planted on the spot he died and it's now over 30 years. And the tree is, as you can imagine, it's, it's huge and thriving. It's a weeping willow. And I think there's a bit of her that always wants to be able to see that tree from wherever she lives. Yeah. Sorry to absolutely change change no. the tone there, but um, but yeah, I think that I'm pleased she's staying there because that'll be the place she stays till you know till she's no longer here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Gabby, what was your childhood like? My childhood was super happy with lots of activity, moving around a lot. My dad was a football manager, so we moved and football player. We moved cities and schools and um, houses. I think I lived in four houses by the time I was four or three. Wow. Yeah, yeah, four actually, because we moved to Coventry when I was four. Um, and then we moved to Canada and uh, there was lots of sport and lots of um, busyness, you know. And my mum had to often be mum and dad if my dad had moved ahead somewhere. You know, she was always kind of packing up a house and moving on. Um, and it was the three of us until I was 13. And then my little brother was born, who's who's no, not so little anymore. Um, and he was I think he was a bit of a surprise. I'm fairly sure he was a surprise, <laughs> a lovely surprise, obviously. Um, so so the, the actual kind of memories I have of childhood are filled with sport, filled with um, kind of laughter and young parents. You know, they were 23 when they had me, 26, wow. they had three kids. So. They were busy doing their own social things at weekends, you know, lots of babysitters on a Saturday night. And we're very, very, very much like my mum getting glammed up at seven o'clock on a Saturday night and then they were out for the night. And we, yeah. had, a, we had some poor victim of a babysitter who we absolutely terrorised and told we were allowed to drink, <laughs> you know. Uh, there was a green liqueur called creme de menthe. And I remember my mum coming home with three of us puking up all over the living room floor because we told this babysitter that it was a mint drink that we were allowed to have. We didn't know what it was, but we liked the look of it because it was in the drinks cabinet. <laughs> right. And, yeah, even, I don't think they had babysitters that came back you know there was always because we were so close to <laughs> age we were we were you know a year between each of us so yeah. we just kind of you know ganged up together and we'd say oh you know we're allowed to bake cakes you know we're oh no we're allowed to do we're allowed to do this so yeah fun times <laughs> when you were younger did you look ahead to the future and think that you would be a mum is that something a role that you really wanted yeah I think I'm the eldest of four we lost my brother Daniel when he was 15, but there were four of us for, for a few years at least and three women I was growing up and that felt like a busy house. And I yeah. loved that that busyness and I always wanted that for myself, you know, when I was... Did you take on quite a maternal role within with your siblings as well, do you think? Um, I think, yeah, I think you look out for them all the time, yeah. I think. And um, I loved when Jordan was born and I was 13 that's a, a really interesting age to have a little baby brother. On the one hand, it gives you a real insight to, you know, how hard it is to have a baby. So the romantic notions of having a baby were out the window and I shattered. I, yeah. And I was, there was no way I was being a teenage mum. <laughs> that, that was the best contraception my mum ever did. It was like, gosh, this is hard. And I remember one night saying, no, I'll have him tonight because I could see she was tired. And by two o'clock in the morning, I was, I was beaten. You know, I remember carrying him back to her room going, I can't do this. Um, 
and I love taking him in the buggy into Leeds. I'd say, can I go into Leeds with him today when he was like one, you know, and Aww. I'd walk around. I'd get him on the bus. And I, me and my sister were chatting about this. My sister's 11 months younger than me. And we were chatting about this last year because she lives in America. I was like, do you remember we used to like, we, she was 13, I was 14, and we used to get him on the bus and just walk around Leeds with him. Or we'd take him to York for the afternoon and things. I like, okay. My mum must have been so relaxed on a fourth child. She was just like, I don't think I'd have given my babies to a 13-year-old and said, go, yeah, go on, get on the train, have a nice afternoon. No. But it was a lovely way of experiencing being with a baby and having that, you know, relationship as a sibling, obviously, and knowing everything about him as a baby, you know, and seeing, you know, kind of how he was um, when he was teething or when he was being weaned, all those things that, you know, that you go on later on. So I did. Yeah, that didn't certainly didn't put me off. It just put me off for a while, I think. Yeah, I, I thought I'd have more children, though. I always thought I'd have four children. So, and I just the other night said to Kenny when we were talking about our empty house in the future, it's like, we should have had more children. Um, <laughs> and that's, you know, if not a regret, it's, and it was out of my control in many ways, but I, yeah. but I, yeah, I often kind of think, oh, how come that happened? And I think I know how it happened because when you have twins as your firstborn, you think life's going to get back to normal and it never does. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and maybe that's the same with every baby. But you, we were waiting for that day where we felt everything's under control now. Now we can have another yeah. baby. And nothing ever gets back. You just kind of, we should have just gone for it almost straight away, you know, with, a, with another baby. But we were naively thinking that our old life of, you know, um, being a bit more kind of, I suppose, hedonistic and selfish was somehow going to come back. But also, I think when you first start trying for a baby, because I know that, that Kenny really wanted to have kids young as well. Mm. When you first start, you're quite naive going into it. You know, you see people around you getting pregnant and it's all all really, really simple and easy. And actually, it that wasn't the, the case for you two. No. And, and um, what, was, what was the start of that journey like and how quickly did you realise that it wasn't going to be as straightforward as, you, as you'd imagined? I, we, we got married when um, I was 28, Kenny was 29, and we almost immediately wanted to try and start having a family. And which some of my girlfriends were really like, what? What are you going to do about your career? And I, they were a little bit shocked that I was thinking of this because actually at that point they hadn't started yet. By the time we actually had Reuben and Lois, my best mate had three kids. <laughs> my, another wow. of those mates, you know, that I was talking to was on to her third pregnancy. So that that time lag that happened was basically us not getting pregnant, naturally. And after a year, me starting to think, this isn't happening. What's, you know, what's going on? Then another mm. six months or so went by when I started to pick up books in Waterstones and go, well, hang on a minute, let's flick to the pages of what I'm doing wrong and couldn't see what was you know what I was doing wrong I was thinking this isn't you know this isn't quite what I thought and then that formal conversation you first have with a doctor where you discuss it and because we were so young and healthy they just kept saying things like I'll oh, just keep trying you know and it was we weren't seen as urgent I don't think because we were still mm -hmm. in our late 20s and t tipping 30 and our lives were busy and fulfilled you know we had great um you know jobs and we were we we're enjoying life so I think because of that, it looks on the outside sometimes, doesn't it? Like you're not really trying and you don't really want to start a family. So, you know, people perhaps didn't quite take seriously that that ambition. And also you don't you don't you feel in your heart somehow you're failing and you don't want to always admit that, that you're you're not achieving this thing that seems so easy for everybody else. And um, and so once we started on the, the voyage of discovery of what was going on inside my body and Kenny's body and then. And then we're told after some quite, you know, intrusive tests, oh, well, you're 20% of the people who have inexplained infertility. 
that was the most unsatisfying conversation ever because no, how do you fix that yeah. what 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 is that what does that mean you know? and what why why have you not explained this for people <laughs> you know um but that was when we had to decide okay we're going to have to have some kind of intervention in the way we get pregnant and we were given all these options of you know well there's no reason your eggs are fine and his sperm's fine there's no reason why you're not getting pregnant you're just and i had this image of um, everything being perfect apart from the point of, you know, conception of where the sperm and the egg meets that uh, my eggs went, oh, and his sperm went, God. And then and they, they both kind of ran away from each other. That was my kind of mental image of what was going on inside my body. Um, and the, uh, you know, can imagine the gynecologist obstetrician going, no, it doesn't quite work like that. Um, <laughs> so they get from, together, they have a little chat yeah. and they're like, no, actually, I'm you're not for me. From one of four, Kenny's one of three. My, I was thinking this last night, actually, my female cousins have all got three, at least three children each, you know, so, um, there was no sense of kind of in the family anywhere that this was a, a familiar problem, you know, mm. so, or, or challenge. And nobody I knew in the family had had any interventions with regard to getting pregnant so I was on uncharted territory in that respect and and didn't really even talk to my mum about it. Did you talk to anyone about it or did you and you and Kenny just keep it to yourselves? We pretty much kept it to ourselves my very best friend who had um, three babies by the time I had mine who wasn't going to have you know any babies <laughs> at all at that point um, I, t I talked to her and she was because she fell pregnant literally by just looking at her husband she had not got a clue what IVF was you know so when I was expecting she thought that I was somehow having I remember her saying something that implied it was a surrogate baby I said no no, no it's this is my um, eggs and Kenny and it's inside me you know because when until you start exploring those things you don't have the knowledge of them do you why yeah. would you so I was getting immersed in this world, obviously, of fertility. And um, and then I did, um, we did embark on IVF. And we were very, very lucky because I know it takes some women a long time to get pregnant. And we were first, first time. So um, it was, you know, very, very joyous. That whole image and kind of experience for me is not as fraught. And a lot of people I know find it very emotionally challenging and very physically challenging. But I guess because we were successful first time it feels like a really positive experience yeah absolutely absolutely and every every fertility journey is so individual and yeah. personal isn't it and it's mm. and i think you can take comfort from other people's stories you know whatever you know but it's so difficult knowing well that's not me or yeah you know um when uh, there was there were so many different parts of that ivf journey mm. um what was it like uh, when your eggs were put, when the embryos were put mm. back inside that, that day? Um, it, it was, I can picture everything about that day um, and, you know, the journey back home and coming into the house thinking, I'm kind of pregnant and, you know, not, and sitting down and Kenny being very attentive and wanting to make my dinner. And he was playing rugby in Glasgow in the last year of his career. And we were kind of moving between the both cities, but there was no way that night he wanted me to fly back to Glasgow. So we went back to our house in London and he was going to have to get a late plane back. And um, he was really lovely and made me some food and he kind of went off and I felt quite emotional. I was on my own in the house. And, and then I started to smell um, burning in the house. I thought, oh, my God, what's going on? Like, and I started walking. It was a townhouse. I started walking up the flights of stairs. And as I'm getting towards the top of the house, I could see a bit of smoke coming out of our bedroom and stupidly open the door because it could have been anything in there. Yeah. And it was filled. The whole room was filled with um, black ash kind of falling from the ceiling. There's clearly been a fire somewhere. 
And I was like, oh, my God. And then thinking, is this smoke going to affect, you know, the chance of the babies or yeah. a baby uh, surviving? And I walked towards the bathroom and I could see red on it. I had a big, long mirror. I could see red on this mirror. And I was like, what the hell is that on the mirror? And I opened the door to the bathroom and all this smoke came out. But to cut a long story short, Kenny had decided to turn on the heated towel rail and put my dressing gown on it because he wanted it to be warm for me when I went upstairs. We'd <laughs> never used this towel rail before because it was quite newly done out. It burnt itself out, caught fire to the um, the dressing gown, caught fire, basically. This was the, what all the ash was. Oh we luckily gosh. had a fully tiled kind of limestone-y kind of bathroom. Nothing in there could catch fire. The red on the mirror was a letter he'd written to me in lipstick saying, I love you so much, you'll have, you know, we'll be great parents, this will be all great and all this. So this sinister thing that I thought was some kind of somebody's <laughs> mess. So this whole scene Something was... Something really, really romantic yeah. that turned into a horror story. Exactly. And he was by this point on the plane to Glasgow. So it was another two hours before I kind of got hold of him and said, oh, by the way, thanks for turning the heated towel rail on. You set fire to the bathroom and scared the living bejesus <laughs> out of me when I saw the letter on the, in the mirror. So I do remember the first first day I got home very well actually oh my gosh oh my goodness um what were those next couple of weeks like because oh. obviously you from that point no you then just have to you have to wait to yeah. see what the outcome is and uh, again not really telling you know anybody about it because I, I I thought if we've got to do this five times I don't yeah. want this to be a constant I don't want this to be me this is all I am is somebody who just keeps going through you know rounds of IVF I want to have the rest of my life. I don't want this to overtake us or me, so I don't want to talk about it. So, Is that because you thought that if if you did share it, that people would want to talk to you about it? Yeah. Or did you just just want to keep but, it something that's just, just yeah, you? I just felt it was, at that point, we just wanted it to just be us because I, I just didn't want to... It wasn't that I didn't want to talk about it, and clearly I am now, and as soon as I was pregnant, I did. But I just wanted to get through this, not knowing if it was going to work, because I, I, I just didn't want to have to keep constantly being asked by every, you know, oh, are you on another round of IVF? How's it going? What's, you know, I, and I, I thought, right, I'll, this is how we'll approach it for this time. And Kenny was really kind of with me on that as well. Would it have added an extra element of pressure? Yeah, it's expectation and all of that yeah. that's going on. And so, and none of my friends, if I'd had friends who'd been through IVF, I would have talked to them about it, but none of them had. So, yeah. um, so that, that was, those few weeks were really nerve wracking, actually. And I carried on working and doing, you know, kind of things. I didn't, you know, overexert myself, but I thought if I was pregnant naturally, I wouldn't know and I wouldn't be yeah. stopping doing things. I was trying to behave normally, yeah. um, as normally as I, you know, as I could. And then on the day that I was due to, I had given a blood test on, I think, seven or eight weeks. And on the day I was due to get the results, because they do that early blood test, um, I've forgotten what the, the indicator is that tells you whether you're pregnant. But on that day that I was due the phone call, I woke up and I'd bled. And I was absolutely distraught. Kenny was in Glasgow and I rang him up and I said, I think we've lost the babies. I think, you know, this is... Not it's not happening, and he was so amazing. He was like, "Look, we'll we'll go again, and it's okay. We've learnt a lot, and this is you know." And um, I just was right, right. This is you know, just got to be kind of stoic about this and wait for that phone call. And the phone call came through later that day. And um, no, sorry, the, the, I've done that the wrong way around. The blood was on the day of the blood test. The phone call came the next day, right. and because obviously, if it was the day after, I'd, I'd have had a different result. But um, they said, "Oh, don't worry about that." You know, that, that can happen. You can have a bit of sp spotting. I mean, I wasn't obviously, you know, hemorrhaging, but I was 
I was sure that this was a sign. And they said, um, you're pregnant, basically. And they they said something else to me on the phone. The doctor said something else to me on the phone, which was basically telling me that both eggs had taken because he was talking about the numbers that were so high. Right. Um, but I didn't get that in, in what he said, because I just heard that you're pregnant. That was enough. You know, I didn't <laughs> didn't care, you know, kind of like what what that meant. It's just you're pregnant was amazing. So, um, yeah, that and was. And you just and you decided to put two eggs in instead of one. That... Yeah, I think we just, you know, at the time it only just changed, I think, from I think we could have still at that point, you could still put three eggs in, I think, actually wow. back then. Because I had quite a few blastocysts as well. So we could have put three in, but yeah. we decided on two because of, you know, the risks of um, the pregnancy. Mm. Um, and, yeah, when we've had the first scan, I think at 10 weeks, there they were two beating hearts. So, yeah, that was... Um, I get, in a way, were you prepared for, for it being twins because you knew that, you yeah, know, there so were two eggs? Yeah, so you knew there was a chance, but <clears throat> yeah. it still was quite a thing, you know, to see that, yeah. to see that on a screen and to think that's, you know, that, wow, that's amazing and... Um, and my best friend had had twins, identical girls. Um, well, she was that she was due in the August and this was the February. So uh, no, she'd had them in the August, sorry. And this was the February. So she had six month old identical twins. So there was a bit of <laughs> so a You knew what that life looked like. <laughs> I, well, she also had an 11 month old. So she had three girls under 14 months when, when, uh, at that point. So yeah. Oh my gosh. So I, I was thinking of her household going, oh God, this is, <laughs> how am I going to do this? Um, so there was a bit of that, but it was weird. I remember thinking then I had this kind of premonition when I was younger that I would have twins, you know, when you kind of look into your future. And I had this yeah. weird thing when I was a kid that I'd have twins because I remember thinking, thinking about how ginormous a, you know pregnancy is with twins and how big you yeah. get and uh, and being a bit scared of it and then there I was kind of you know 20 weeks later saying to my um, gynecologist why am I hurting so much and he said because you're the size of a fully you know term full term pregnancy yeah. and it's only 20 weeks he said your body's gone from 13 weeks pretty much nothing to 20 weeks you're almost the same you know circumference <laughs> as a full term yeah and you think of all that stretching and shifting has yeah. to happen in a in, in a, a short you know, period of time yeah yeah and so um yeah so I remember um kind of going god nobody tells you this bit about <laughs> about you what goes on in a twin pregnancy what was the pregnancy like um I had a, a, a really bad um, first trimester of headaches, like really right. bad headaches. And um, my doctor said, look, people don't talk about headaches. They talk about sickness. They never talk about it. But yeah. headaches is actually the second, one of the second biggest kind of complaints. And and you can do, you can take half an aspirin and it, it will either get rid of it or unfortunately you're stuck with it through the pregnancy. Right. And by the middle of the second trimester, I, I got rid of the headaches, thank God. But um because I was so big, um, I did have, I was physically uncomfortable. I wasn't used to kind of that feeling of walking up the stairs and having to sit down halfway up the stairs. And, you know, <laughs> all those things that, that got kind of quite big quite quickly meant that I, I just practical things like, you know, bending over, you know, not. And all that happened so quickly and my body changed so quickly. I found that really hard to deal with. Not not from a point of view of a visual kind of aesthetic thing, just no, the but, practical side of life. Getting yeah. into a car, I had to change my car. I had a kind of Jaguar sports car and I had to get rid of it. I couldn't get into it. I was, I was <laughs> so um, so that was that was all quite, quite shocking. And, you know, to me, I was like, oh, my God, what's going on? And I didn't I didn't feel um, like I was still doing exercise and still walking. I was still able to move, but I just didn't feel comfortable. And I also found out I had this pain in my back, which I thought 
was to do with expansion. And I, I, I assumed it was my boobs growing. And I kept going and getting new bras and I kept buying Gaviscon and I, I trying to work out what it was that was this pain in my chest. And it was one of my, one of the twins had, uh, one of the babies had uh, kicked a rib out. And um, so it wasn't until I went to a physio, he said, unfortunately, I can't manipulate that back in because that releases oxytocin. He said, I could put you into labour at 26 weeks, which you don't want. So I had to then endure this horrific back pain, which the only time I ever experienced it again was when I did Strictly Come Dancing. And James Jordan, my partner, made me do a kind of backward walkover. And I went, ow, I know that pain. And I, I popped a rib then as well. So, oh. yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Reuben because it was the baby who was head down who'd done it. Um, <laughs> we'll blame Reuben. Yeah. It's fine. It's so, fine. He yeah, can so take it was, it was quite a, quite a kind of uncomfortable I remember one night ringing my mum going, oh, God, I feel really uncomfortable. She went, am I only getting two grandchildren? Because oh. <laughs> I was obviously moaning. But, um, yeah, it How was... were you emotionally? Because obviously when you've been on a, on a journey mm. and it's taken time to, to get pregnant, uh, you know, my for me, I, I felt like I was worried. The whole, and I have been worried every single pregnancy. You know, I, I feel like each day is a... Is a like a, a take a breath yeah, you know yeah. we've got through that day yeah I was, was it I similar was, for you yeah I was very after especially when I got to 30 well late, late 20 weeks because my friend had had hers at 34 and you know I was due to get induced if I got to 38 they would induce me because right. um my obstetrician didn't want me to go beyond 38 weeks and so every week then after the late 20s, I was I was thinking I was listening to my body all the time thinking, is this the day that, you know, something's going to happen or can I hear anything? Can I feel anything today? Something, you know, I did have one moment where I rushed myself in and wanted to scan because I was sure that everything had stopped. You know, I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't feel them. And, I, and when you've got two babies moving and there's no movement then you really start to panic because you can have a lot of movement some days, a lot of feet kind yeah. of, you know, prodding out. And then it was just very, very quiet that day. And Kenny was away somewhere that day and he was playing in a charity golf day in Newcastle, I think. And he said, just go, go and see him and don't, you know, don't worry. Just, just, he won't mind. Um, and so I, I think I probably was a bit more anxious than say if I'd, I mm. hadn't gone through the process of IVF and everything else, maybe that probably added to the anxiety, I think. Um, but I had, you know, a brilliant... Um, obstetrician who was just so you know he specialized in multiple births and he just would reassure me a lot and I wanted to try and enjoy those final few weeks if I could and yeah knowing that life was going to change beyond all recognition so um so overall I would say you know kind of look back and think actually it was a really happy time I did the Champions League final in uh Istanbul when I was 30 weeks pregnant so I was ginormous I can't believe I went on television in this this you know this suit that kind of like I'd had specially made that was like a tent that hung out I thought <laughs> I was absolutely smashing it and I look back at the picture I'm like, oh, I had a space hopper at my jumper you know um and I got and the reason Kenny came out for that match was because I was told that they could try and stop me flying home because I was on the cusp of when you have to cut off, you know, flying. Because I was so big, they thought I was nine months pregnant and they weren't going to ah. let me on the plane. They were saying, no, you can't fly. And Kenny had to, you know, kind of say, no, she's, I'm I'm her husband. She's, she's okay. Um, and so after that, I kind of wound down my, my work and just tried to kind of really nest and get, you know, get everything ready. Because I just, yeah. I did think it would, they'd come early because they were twins, I, you know, but the opposite happened. I was 38 weeks and my obstetrician was 37. And he said, do you know what? We can go on a bit longer. And I went, no, you've told me you were going to induce me on the 27th of July. And that is when I'm getting induced because I, I mentally, it was like a kind of, uh, you know, this beacon of hope in the horizon. The 27th yeah. of July is the date. And 
I'm not going a day. Well, I did go a day longer because they didn't come out until the 28th. But um, yeah, I was. I wonder if that's also seeing the finish line. And if you've got so. that in your in your in your yeah. vision and in your yeah. mind the whole time, to for it suddenly be moved, yeah. you've not been training for that. No, the training is stopped. For that. It. Yeah, that's the day of competition. That's yeah. the, that's the baby Olympics, <laughs> and that's when I'm competing. Uh, so um, yeah, so he was like, "All right, okay." <laughs> <laughs> what did it feel like when you were going in to be induced? We went that morning, we went for breakfast uh, somewhere together and had this kind of, right, this is it. You know, we're on the edge of, you know, this, that our life's changing and having this, that day feeling, packing my bag and all those things and feeling like this is, you know, this is, we're in control. This is all great. This is the plan and everything. And, and then getting into hospital and being induced, suddenly everything kind of just goes out the window, doesn't it? Because you're no longer really in control of what's happening. Mm-hmm. And um Kenny uh it was about seven o'clock in the evening they got me in because they said it won't work first time it never does so we'll get you in and induce you and if nothing's happening you stay the night we can monitor you and Kenny comes back in the morning only he went home and about two hours later I went into full-blown labor and but I left it a couple of hours I started doing all my breathing and my you know I thought I can't call everybody now it's 11 o'clock I've got to let them all you know and eventually about one in the morning I went to reception and I said to this amazing midwife I said I think I'm in labour. She went, yes, dear, that's why you came here. And uh, <laughs> she was very matter of fact about it. She said, go back to bed, keep doing what you're doing. We'll just, see, we'll just see how you are, we'll monitor you. And then I rang Kenny eventually and I said, I, I'm in labour, would you like to come back? And he's like, why, why didn't you ring me straight away? <laughs> and then I rang my um, obstetrician. And I, then I, was gonna, I don't want to bother everyone, yeah, but just, there might be two babies coming couple, out very there's soon. There's a couple of things going on here. Um, <laughs> but unfortunately, it was 24 hours later before I actually gave birth because um, like a lot of women who are induced and uh, you, you, know, you only start reading these things after, don't you? It can just then slow down dramatically. And after yeah. about 12 hours, it just was tailing off. And my... My obstetrician had made a deal with me that I was determined I wanted a natural birth. And he said, OK, you've got to have an epidural because at some point, because if we have to intervene, which we do often with multiple births, we want to be sure that we can you know, get the pain relief in and everything you said. So um, he did that in the early part of the afternoon. And that's when it all just tailed off. And I felt like I was wasting it. I was like, what's going on? Nothing's happening now. It's yeah. really slow. I'm not dilating. And about seven o'clock, he said to me, I'm really sorry, said, but you've been in labour now for 20 hours. We're going to have to, you know, get ready for a cesarean. I know it's not what you were hoping for, but that's what we're going to do. And I said, OK. And Kenny said, right, I'm going to go off and leave you on your own to just have some time. And he went off to um, the room that I'd been in before to watch Emmerdale. <laughs> <That was me. laughs> and my parents had arrived by this point with my brother and they were in another waiting room. And I was lying there on this bed in this hospital room on my own thinking, you know how you do this with your mental state going, no, this is for the best. This is for the babies. This is all about them. This is not about me. And, you know, this is, this is, and I was really kind of getting my mind focused on that. And then my midwife came in and she went, oh my God, you've gone from four to 10 centimetres in an hour. We're going to have to get these babies out. You're going to have to push. And I was like, what? And so... Do you think it's because in that moment you almost relaxed? Yeah, I'm sure it is. And just just thought, well, I'll let, you know, I'll let them do whatever it is they have to do. And so, yeah, so eventually, I mean, it was a few hours later um, that they they came out and um, within 16 minutes of each other. (laughs) Oh, who came first? (laughs) Ruben. He was, yeah, he was head first. And so... He and she was um, breech, and they assumed that she would kind of flip. That often happens. The baby whose head first comes out, and then the yeah. other one kind of turns because they've got loads more space. But she didn't turn, so he came out quite easy. Not easy at all. I mean, not easy. What I mean is, without yeah. too much kind of. I think he had a, 
he must have had a forceps or something to help him a little bit, but he was, you know, uh, he was okay. And everything was fine. And then I thought, <laughs> I thought I'd have a cup of tea and maybe a piece of cake and just chill for a bit. And, <laughs> and I'm putting him on my skin and Kenny's putting him on his skin. And then my obstetrician, who's this Australian guy, goes, all right, Gabby, I think we're going to get on with this. Yeah. Okay. Because <laughs> I was obviously looking at me like, does she think this is it? You know, and <laughs> has she like, forgotten there's another one? some water. <laughs> and um, and uh, she didn't turn. So um, she was delivered breach, um, which obviously is very, very rare. So she, what came out first then? Her feet. She came out feet first. So um, her feet dropped down and obviously she was guided out then. So breech babies um, don't cry straight away because they're quite shocked. <laughs> because, right. So so they took ages. She took ages to cry and took ages to get a kind of her air. Um, well, it felt like ages, you know. So yeah. um, so that was a bit of a moment where they were kind of going, OK, right. She, and I, she, is she OK? Yeah, yeah, she's fine. She's fine. Like, I can't hear her. I can't hear her. Yeah. Um, I, and I, you know, obviously eventually then she did. And they put them in that, you know, that, those little kind of like washing bowls, washing up bowls. And they were there yeah. lying there in the washing up bowl. Unfortunately, I didn't fare quite so well. I had a bit of a, a hemorrhage, but um, and so I was kind of take, rushed into theatre then. Was that straight away? Yeah, well, I just I didn't um, I didn't distend basically. Which again, here's here's one for the listeners. The chapter in the book that I'd been reading about twin births did have clearly a lot of information about how twin births sometimes don't distend, but I'd ignored all of that because I wanted to wash over the kind of, you know, the bits that I, I didn't want to know, as you That's do. That's not pretty. I just want to know uh, about exactly. the kids. Yeah. <laughs> Where's so, the babies? Uh, so it was, it's something that can happen. Um, and obviously you're injected then with heparin to try and induce that, but it, just, the, the heparin wasn't working. And... Um, so I was, Kenny was scrubbed up. Everybody had to kind of scrub up and I was wheeled past my poor parents who'd seen the first baby. Kenny had rushed out oh. with Reuben and shown them Reuben, but never came out with Lois because this all happened so quickly. So they were thinking something was happening with the second baby. And meanwhile, I'm then being wheeled down the corridor and they're going, oh my God. So my mum went into the room where the babies had been left because they were on their own at this point. And, um, <sighs> and somebody was in trying to mop up all, all the gory stuff that was on the floor. And so she just kind of came in and saw her first grandchildren lying there. And, um, and then I was reunited with them about two and a half hours later in a, in a bay, kind of, you know, half past two in the morning. So um, did you have to have... Um, were you, did you have to have general anaesthetic to, to, no, did well, you have to? Luckily, because of my deal with my obstetrician, I had um, the um, epidural. epidural. So they were able to pump in more pain relief at that point. And um, I was, I was very close to completely passing out. I was losing, you know, I was, I'd lost so, so much blood. I'd lost almost half the blood in my body eventually. So I, I had a massive, massive hemorrhage and I was, I was lying there kind of thinking, I'm going to sleep, like I'm gone. You know, and Kenny said my face just went white and I was, you know, and he, he actually, I heard him say, is she going to make it? Basically to ask my obstetrician. And he says, he didn't tell me this straight away, but he said he was stood there thinking, I've got two babies and I'm about to lose my wife. I'm going to become a father and they're going to lose their mother. You know, he really, he could see, because the drama of the whole situation happened so quickly, you know, with the crash button being pressed and people kind yeah. of coming in because I had to have you know, lots of people in there doing their various jobs and, and suddenly gone from this nice room that had a had a, a whirlpool jacuzzi in it, which we obviously weren't allowed to use with twins, but um, they had, you know, the whole kind of, it wasn't totally serene, but it was a much more relaxed birth room and then mm. into theatre um, for for what happened next. So, and had to have a massive blood transfusion. And it meant then, obviously, I had to stay in hospital a bit longer than I was hoping to because I wanted to be out really quickly and I had to stay for a week in the end. 
So um, I then got completely institutionalised. <laughs> <No one, laughs> I never wanted to leave. <laughs> I had to practice walking down the steps the night before I left because I couldn't imagine leaving this haven of kind of these lovely midwives and this safe environment. I, was like, I don't want to go home ever. <laughs> oh, and also, they're kind of helping you within those early yeah. early oh. days. Well, and suddenly we go, but now I've got to do it on my own. But yeah. We had such a nice system yeah. set up. <laughs> yeah, you, I was just pressing this buzzer and you were coming to help me. And then, <laughs> Where do you live? Can you can you be around in 20 minutes? Because I'd had this, I'd been awake for two days by the time almost like I was I was awake for three hours short of two days by the time I got into the bay. And um, and I remember the midwife saying or another nurse saying, OK, do you want to breastfeed them? And I went, can I be honest? No, I'm exhausted. <laughs> and my mum pulled out this cheese sandwich she'd made and it was in a bag and it was the t- best thing ever you know I was absolutely starving I hadn't Aww. eaten for about two days I remember eating this cheese sandwich and the babies were lying there and I said can I can I just you know ask can I start tomorrow can I start being a mum in the morning and- <laughs> <laughs> that's the funniest thing isn't it you take on the biggest role of your life Knackered. when you are at your most depleted yeah in every single sense I know I, mother nature really hasn't worked that one out I remember thinking afterwards what should happen is a baby should come out in a kind of little cocoon thing and it and it takes about three weeks to burst out properly and you get your like strength an egg, and energy. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and then we go, okay, let's get on with this now. We're all good. Everybody's ready to go. So yeah, it wasn't it wasn't exactly that, but it wasn't how I'd imagined it. Um one thing you've you've had with uh with Ruben and, and Lois is they have now unfortunately surpassed, well, fortunately surpassed the age that Daniel was when when he died. Um, That must be a very weird part of your grief Mm. as well because obviously you've you've lost him as as a sister, Mm. but now that your kids have been similar to age to him, does that make you look at your mum in a different light and and what she would have experienced? Especially the year where... Reuben became older than the yeah. than the, the age that Daniel was more more oh. Reuben than Lois because of that kind of the you know st- first of all a strong kind of link the way they look you know facially and everything but also he he's really you know good at sport Rubes and he plays rugby and Daniel was a footballer and and it was all those kinds of similarities and leading up to his sixteenth birthday which was two months before Daniel was sixteen when he died. I, I didn't realise how much I'd carried that anxiety actually about him turning that age and getting past that age almost. And that's not to say that, you know, anything can happen at any time. Obviously, yep. I'm not, you know, not naive enough to think that. But but it was obviously symbolic for me, I think, more than I realised that he, you know, to get. And as you say, then putting myself in my mum's shoes at that age and seeing, you know, um, his his development beyond those years and, mm. you know, how all those things were missed out. And obviously Jordan went through, you know, his 16th yeah. birthday as well um, a few years later. But um, I think probably becoming a mum was, was more the moment where I really thought about that loss a lot more. But then, of course, when they're babies, you're not seeing the character, they're not talking to you, you don't have that. So the more, the older they get, the more... Um, the more impact they've had on your lives, haven't they? In terms yeah. of, um, it doesn't mean that grief and loss is any different, but I suppose it's then the feeling of the person that they were becoming and that, that they would be and all those things that you, you know, carry through your um, grieving process, which um, I think was, it hit hard around his 16th birthday, sure. Yeah, yeah. Mm. 
Um, in every episode, uh, I ask uh, you if you could write a letter on motherhood, who would it be to and what would you say? I'd be torn between writing to my mum and writing to, to my two, actually. Yeah. Probably write to my two because... I asked them, knowing I was doing this today, I asked them yesterday for five bullet points each of good things and bad things about me as a mum, <laughs> which was brutal, as you can imagine. Um, so you're in an assessment. Yeah. So. <laughs> and, you know, you know you haven't got stuff right and you know there are yeah. things that you could have done better and there are things that you were doing with absolutely the best will in the world but you might have just overstepped the mark or not quite, you know, got the tone right. And yeah. Or times that you've lost your patience when you, you know, you should have just tried to be a little bit more in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose the letter would be not asking for forgiveness at all, because I don't want to kind of sound like I'm, you know, looking to be, you know, kind of this exonerated perfect, you know, um mum. But but feeling like actually um I know it didn't I didn't always get these things right, but hopefully you know, there's enough that was that was okay there that you feel, you know, that you've you've had a great time being mothered by me, and that you yeah. know that we we've got the balance right. So I suppose it would be a bit about that, and and I suppose if it, if it was to them at this age now, they might look on it themselves when they become parents and and not put huge expectations on themselves to be you know to be perfect because we just don't we don't all get it get it right. Funnily enough, when I was you talked about being emotional when I was pregnant. I was watching Glastonbury the summer, about a month, it must have been a month before they were born. And um, and I remember being really emotional. What, I can't remember what act was on that I was I wasn't at Glastonbury, can I just say that? I wasn't eight <laughs> months pregnant at Glastonbury. I was watching it on the good old BBC. And, um, and I got really emotional watching an act and decided to write a letter to them. And I sealed it ready for their 21st birthday. And it's in a box in my office right now. And I have no idea what I wrote because I've never opened it. But and they know it's there, but it's they're not going to yeah. open it until they're until they're twenty one. Um, and I and I wonder how much I I can't remember what I was writing, but I wonder how much I was in that letter writing about kind of what how I hope to be as a mum. <laughs> maybe yeah. maybe I didn't you know live up to all those um, hopes. But um, yeah, I think I think I would I would write to them. Yeah. Um, we end the podcast with you completing three sentences. The first one is being a mum means. Being a mum means everything. It's the most all-encompassing job and task and privilege and joy, I think. it's It doesn't matter what else is going on in your life. It, it is the thing that kind of predicates all your decisions. It, it gives you a perspective on everything that you do. And um, I'm... I'm so glad. It took a bit of effort, but I'm so glad we got there. Since having children, I? Since having children, I am probably a better person, actually. I'm probably probably a bit more... Um, um, I won't say patient, but I'm probably I'm probably better for having children. I definitely feel I look at the world in a different way. So they've they've made me better. I love that. I would say patient, but I can't. <laughs> Because the kids might, yeah, might listen and be like, no. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and finally, I'm happy when? I'm happy when my gang are all together. I'm happy when we usually sometime on a Sunday, whether it's a late lunch or, you know, we, we eat all our meals pretty much together at home, but you don't always have that proper conversation time. And yeah. it's usually at the weekend when we really sit down for a big meal together and we're chewing the fat literally and uh, metaphorically about life and they are the times I feel happiest I think yeah 
I love that. Gabby, thank you so much. I've absolutely loved chatting to you. And you too. Thank you so much for having me. And it's a great thank podcast. You. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies.